Welcome to the eighth in our series of Urban Transport Next Conversations with a live online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you're listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. And for those of you who don't know us, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas. So transport for Greater Manchester, transport for West Midlands, transport for London, and for all the other major metro areas as well, serving over 20 million people. As well as being a body that thinks ahead about what's next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and we can and do learn collectively from these events. Now, UTG, we'll, we do like to look ahead, uh, so we're delighted today to give some space at this event to talk about how we can do more to put children at the heart of transport planning. And it wouldn't be possible to have a better lineup to discuss this, uh, namely Tim Gill, who is a global advocate for children's outdoor play and mobility, an independent scholar, writer and consultant, is the author of Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities, and No Fear, Growing Up in a Risk-Averse Society. And Lucy Marstrander is technical lead for walking and cycling at Metis Consultants. She provides policy, planning and design advice on walking, cycling, urban design and road danger reduction to authorities across the UK. We'll be finding out more about Tim and Lucy and what makes them tick during the conversation, which will be hosted by my colleague, Rebecca Fuller, Assistant Director at Urban Transport Group, who works to make the case for the right policies in urban transport and related areas to support inclusive and sustainable growth. And you can also be part of this conversation in three ways. First, by putting questions, keep them short and sharp, by the Zoom questions box. You can also vote for your favourite question that you want answered. We'll be picking these up in the final section of the conversation. You can also use the comments channel of the Zoom call, and of course on Twitter, using the hashtag UTGnext, hashtag UTGnext. And with that, I will hand over to Becky. Thanks, Jonathan, and welcome once again to Tim. Welcome, Lucy, and welcome to our audience out there. Thank you so much for sparing an hour of your time to join us this afternoon uh, to talk about putting children at the heart of transport planning. Uh, I'll just give you a little overview of uh, the shape of this conversation, just so that you know what the plan is. Uh, we're going to be looking at where we've been, where we are now in terms of taking account of children's needs in transport planning. We're going to look at what the opportunity is, what might happen if we did put children first and how do we get there? What needs to change uh, locally, local government level and national government to, to realise those benefits? Um, but before we do all that, I thought it'd be good just to get to know our panellists a little bit more. Um, so, Lucy, I'm just going to start with you, if that's OK. Could you tell us a little bit about what drives you and how you got into this line of work? Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of an interesting question. What what drives me I mean I suppose in some ways it's it's a kind of broad issue about equalities um, and aiming to ensure that everybody can use the roads they are public spaces and in urban areas about three quarters of our public space is made up of roads so it's really important that everybody can use them um, and but I suppose at a kind of personal level I remember two, two instances really stuck in my mind uh, before I became a transport planner. One of them, um, I was cycling to work uh, in Islington, actually, and a woman just in front of me was run over um, and she was pregnant. And I was also pregnant at the time. And I just remember that what actually caused, in some ways, what caused her death was some railings. So she was kind of ended up being between a lorry and railings. Um, and it really made me think about the kind of design of the street and this, you know, what the way that we design things has such a sort of serious impact on people's lives. Um, and the, the other event was a child um, being killed near where I lived. Um, and I just remember thinking, you know, this is this isn't right that as a society, a parent can get back um, and not know whether their child's going to be be there at the end of the day. So it was those two kind of very personal things in some ways that that um, t 
took me in into this field. Um, but I think I'm from a design background, so I moved from architecture into transport planning. Um, and I was, yeah, I was just very interested in um, kind of questioning how we do things in highways design. Um, and sort of the industry as well seemed to be lacking in diversity. And I, I kind of wondered to some extent whether that contributed to our, our kind of failure to shift the status quo because things have got quite stuck in highways design in a way that they maybe haven't in other fields of design. So, yeah, that, that, those are the kind of motivations for me. Yes, really powerful. Um, what, what an awful thing to have witnessed. Um, and I can see why that's driven you to go in, in the direction that, that you have. And I think um, some of the motivations for this session was thinking about all the sacrifices that children and other road users have, have made to our car-centric lifestyles and the impact that that's had. And that it, perhaps it's time to shift the balance a bit. Um, how about you, Tim? Um, how did you become kind of a child-friendly cities guru in, in right. some respects? Well, my, my story is quite different, although there's still there are some points of contact, but but I really fell into this topic. Um, uh, 25 years ago, uh, I uh, found myself doing a job, a sort of policy and writing job for a quirky outfit called the Children's Play Council that promoted the importance of play as a membership organisation. And it was a sort of short-term, part-time, fixed-term, two-year contract. Um, but by the end of that period, the, the topic had just got under my skin. Um, I just found this sort of questions about how childhood has been changing, children's opportunities to play, but also to get around, um, uh, endlessly fascinating and and quite kind of underexplored. And so it sort of appealed to my you know, I've got a bit of a background in psychology, but also in philosophy and ethics. And so I think there are big moral and political questions that, that I still find interesting. And, you know, a couple of years after uh, that, uh, I became a dad. Um, and so the issues, you know, became kind of personal as well as professional. And um, but in essence, you know, it, I'm, I'm still here and doing what I do because I, I, I think it's engaging. Uh, I, I find it stimulating and interesting. I think I've got some things that people seem to want to 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 respond to and and you know I, and I think that um, it sort of speaks to some of my values about about children and childhood and what a good childhood looks like as well. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to carry on um, while while those good things are happening in in my work. Tim, and while we're talking about a good childhood, um, I thought it might be interesting to think back to yourselves as children and what sort of place you grew up in. And how much freedom you had um, to move around independently? Let's come to you first, Tim, on that one. Well, I had the sort of, you know, a quintessentially seventies free-range childhood. I, I, I spent most of my childhood in in the sort of big village in the home counties, and you know, from about the age of nine, I essentially you know, could more or less go where and when I wanted outside of school. And so I can remember, you know, riding miles on my bike through the countryside, um, roaming the village with my mates, uh, you know, one summer, the summer of 76, long, hot summer, uh, skateboard craze. You know, my friends and I built a skateboard ramp out of, you know, angle iron and plywood and stuck it outside our cul-de-sac where it lived for the whole summer. Um, uh, yeah, so, so that... I mean, I know the nostalgia bell is ringing loudly and and we may talk about how things have changed. But but I think there's actually it's a good question to ask of all of us, because I think we we need to reconnect with some of the emotional resonance of those sorts of experience, which many people even, you know, 10, 20 years younger than me, but maybe not 30 or 40 years younger than me. I'm in my late 50s, by the way, um, can remember. You know, that we can we know what that feels like and I think we've got a sense of why that's important and we need to capture that when we think about children today. Yeah that kind of resonates with me I mean I grew up in the 80s similar in a large village in the home counties in a cul-de-sac and that with loads of other children so we would spend the day cycling round and round and round the estate exploring in the fields at the back and roaming around or we walk to school so, but that's not kind of the experience that my own children are having, I don't think. 
Uh, Lucy, how about you? Yeah, I don't think my childhood was quite so idyllic in in terms of kind of coming in terms of exploring. Um, I think it probably was more constrained growing up in London um, on a road with through traffic. So, yeah, that that was kind of what you know and what you accept. But on the other hand, I think even as a child, I was aware that it it was constraining. You know, there was a kid who got knocked over in my class as they were cycling to school. And I think parents were concerned about about the threat of motor traffic at that time, you know, even at that time, that long ago. Um, So, yeah, I think I think kind of traffic has always sort of been there. And I've always been conscious of the noise of traffic as well. Um, so it's not just the kind of threat of it, it's, it has other implications. Um, even, even as a child, you know, you notice these things um, in some ways, even if you accept that that's how they are. It doesn't, doesn't mean that children don't, don't observe that, that uh, you know, things aren't ideal. Mm. So that kind of leads us into to a wider question, really. Um, uh, and perhaps I could come to Tim for this one first. How has children's mobility changed over time? Uh, why and what's been the impact of that on children's lives? Well, um, we, we know that children's mobility has been declining for, for generations. And, and, and the, the, um, the nice graphic that, that you use to promote this event is, is, is a sort of encapsulation of that, what I, what I call the shrinking horizons of childhood. Uh, but there's good data from uh, the classic sort of children's independent mobility studies going back now I think 50 years um, showing how if you like that license to to travel or or right to roam sometimes called has been shrinking Um, that's a global trend it's not just uh, something that's been happening in the UK um, but it's 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 pretty clear Um, why it's happening is it's a bit harder to say I mean in my own work I think there are there the two strongest forces are firstly that why we're here today really that the the built environment the way that neighborhoods are designed is not conducive to allowing children to get around on their own you know and particularly the threat from cars Um, but I think there's also there are cultural um, values that have changed I think in the last 20 30 40 years around children's safety Um, I think there are other factors too that are important around family working patterns even things like sort of the way houses are built Um, and of course um, there are now pull factors keeping children indoors to a much greater extent than when I was a kid Um, but I would still say that that that, um, the, the, the built form of our human habitats is fundamental to all of this and and that's a, a really crucial thing we need to look at. Lucy what would you what would you say has been the, the kind of impact of of that on children's lives? The impact of the way our streets are designed and yeah I mean you, you know studies show that there are factors that prevent um, or you know the parents are concerned about such as personal safety you know stranger danger and that kind of thing that um, mean that they won't allow their children say to walk independently to school but the overarching factor that is cited by parents is fear of motor traffic so that's the dominant force it's not other things um so I you know there's kind of no getting away from that really um yeah I I mean I, I think there's all sorts of moral questions that come into this that you know we have the Equalities Acts and you know all these different duties um beholden upon local authorities to ensure that roads can be used by everybody um but ensuring that you get from the equality duty you know the laws into a state where the roads can actually be used by lots of different people and not just as for the movement of traffic you know there's been lots of emphasis on moving lots of motor traffic through places um kind of ensuring that those are the the kind of moral things the moral aspirations that are encapsulated in our laws actually happen on the ground. There, there's so many barriers between one thing and the next, you know, between actually creating spaces that everybody can use. Um, so I think, you know, we're a long way off kind of, I suppose, coming up with solutions to how we get from these aspirations that are encapsulated in the Equalities Act to the point where everybody can genuinely use public spaces, which includes streets. 
Can I just yeah, come back really as stressed. well? Sorry, Lucy okay. uh, uh, and, and Becky. Uh, I didn't quite answer all of your question because you, you, you use the word impact as well. And I think it's really important for us to realise the extent to which children suffer because of car dominated and poorly designed neighbourhoods. And, and that, you know, it's, it's about their mental and physical health and well-being. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's about their sort of status, if you like, and, and, and the way that we see children in society. Um, and, you know, all of the, the externalities of car dependent transport hit children the worst. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're more likely to be hurt or killed in road accidents. They're worse affected by pollution. Uh, even in noise pollution affects children more than adults. So um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that, that, that children have kind of been I mean, nobody's sitting home and thinking, how can we hurt children? Oh, I know, we'll promote lots of cars. But children have been sacrificed at the altar of the needs of the car user. And, and I think, and really, this is a different way of saying what Lucy just said, which is these are ethical and moral questions about who has a claim on the decisions and the way that our transport system is shaped. Yeah, a different way of saying it, Tim, and actually a better way of saying what I was trying to say. Um, yeah, no, that that that's absolutely right. I mean, I think you know the the implications of automobility are so far-reaching, aren't they? For as you say, pollution. I mean, climate change as well. There's air pollution is one issue, but then there's climate change, and again, you know, children have um, they're the innocent party, and they're going to have to clean up the mess that adults are making of the planet. So that's another kind of moral moral issue there, which comes out of. Um, the way that we plan transport, uh, yeah. I was really struck uh, in your sort of introductory uh, remarks, Lucy, about that you said that three quarters of public space is made up of roads in urban areas and that, that area is, that huge amount of space is kind of not available to children to, to use safely. So I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I just wanted to explore a bit more uh, in terms of what we actually know about how children are travelling uh, today, what does the data tell us? And are there any gaps in that data? Yeah, well, that's a really, really good question um, and something that I have been talking a little bit to um, a couple of academics about. So Robin Lovelace and Anna Goodman, who've been involved in uh, trying to get really good data for their propensity to cycle tool, um, which, which is a national tool which the Department for Transport has supported. And that tool is, um, yeah, so it's kind of based on uh, things like the census data for commuting. So we have excellent data for how adults get to work, really comprehensive, readily accessible, thorough, you know, rigorous data. But when it comes to child travel, um, the data is, is quite patchy. Um, it's kind of stopped and started. So we are lacking that data. Um, and we need it because a lot of transport planning is based on tools, which in turn is based on the data. So if we don't have up-to-date data, we don't really know what children are doing and how they're moving around. Um, I mean, I think, I suppose the other thing to say is obviously the way children may move according to the data may not be how they want to move. So, for example, we know that amongst primary school children, around half of primary school children, and interestingly, slightly more girls than boys, um, would like to cycle to school, um, but only 2% do so. So there's a kind of potential for, for movement, which we also need to get, get to grips with. Um, which the data won't ne necessarily tell us, but obviously consultation and that kind of thing with children would tell us. Um, so yeah, big big kind of data gaps. Um, and I think what's interesting actually in that that data gap is the lack of evidence and resource and um, kind of concern in a way for child mobility reflects our values as a society. You know, we've got this excellent data for how people get to work, um, and I think that's partly based on this idea that you know, people who work are adding value to society and the way that they, you know, we need to shave off lots of commuting time because it's all valuable time, which would otherwise be spent working. Um, whereas we don't quite place the same value on the child walking to school. So I think there are social values that come through in even in things like what data we're gathering. Do you think uh, the kind of experience of the pandemic may be a, a catalyst to change that focus a little bit now that perhaps more people are working flexibly, working from home, 
um, perhaps the focus on the commuter is kind of more out of date than ever. And um, we need to look at more more variety of journeys, including local short journeys. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's we don't really know what the long term implications are going to be. I mean, it may be that the commute ends up being a much smaller proportion of trips than travel to school um, over the long run, because, as you say, so many more people are working from home. I mean, I think also it raises other questions about, you know, actually, if people are working from home, they want to live on a quiet street. They don't want lots of roaring traffic because <laughs> that disturbs the home working. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, also, actually, during the pandemic, that was like this live experiment of what happens when you remove traffic. And I've not met one person who says, oh, I'd, you know, I'd much prefer to have lorries trundling past. <laughs> you know, wasn't it awful when there was no traffic in the pandemic? We could hear the birds singing, wasn't that? You know, you know, nobody is saying that. Everyone was like, oh, it was lovely. You know, we suddenly experienced what it was like not to live with continuous traffic around us. Um, so I think that that kind of gave people a taste of how things could be. Mm. Yeah, it, it was certainly lovely being able to lift that kind of constant vigilance that you get when you're walking with children. Like, don't go, don't run off too far, mind that road, mind that car, but just to let them go because the streets were empty. It was it was a really lovely experience, but unfortunately the traffic does seem to have come back in force. Tim, did you want to come yeah, in? I just on the subject of data, we we I think we were remiss of us not to mention the wonderful body of work by um, Mayor Hillman and others associated with him around children's independent mobility and this terrific set of data sets now going back 50 years, uh, several generations, international comparisons on, and also they don't just focus on the trip to school. Now I'm not saying it's it, it, it's wrong to 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 you know uh, to 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 leave out to, to focus just on school. I understand why that is a focus, but it's not the only trip that children make or want to make and it would be unfortunate I think if we if we devoted all of our efforts around children's mobility to just making easy for them to get to school and back and forgot mm -hmm. about if you like all those other aspects of their lives I'm interested in children you know and, and their their everyday freedoms throughout their life not just getting to school and back. Yeah, that's a really, really good point, because actually in terms of distance, even even now, in terms of trip distance, the most important, significant trip for children is visiting friends, not going to school. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah. And on, I mean, Mayor Hillman, you asked Rebecca at the beginning of this, what what was a motivating factor? I mean, actually, it was that one false move, which I, I kind of first heard about um, a few years ago. And that, you know, that became the foundation of my MSc thesis and yeah I was it was it's a fascinating report I think that should be compulsory reading for all highways engineers and transport planners because it's you know fa fascinating piece of literature brilliant brilliant bit of work well, for everybody's reading list I thought it was um interesting uh what you said when we were talking about data um that we have to be mindful that how children are moving isn't necessarily how they want to move so as a transport planner, Lucy, how, what extent do you believe that uh, the sector hears and acts upon children's voices and children's views? Well, I mean, clearly there are significant gaps. I think you can look at it in various ways. I mean, for us, I suppose the starting point for a lot of schemes would be a consultation. Um, we're not very good at engaging with children, I think. It's quite hard, you know, it is difficult in some ways. It can't just be a, an online um, uh, piece of consultation. It might, or, you know, a letter drop, it might need to be something much more interactive if you're dealing with children. Um, but, but yeah, there isn't sort of much by way of guidance, I think, for local authorities on how to engage with children. And I would probably extend that even to, you know, quite small children, but also to pregnant women um, who are, um, you know, they are part of the protected characteristics under the Equalities Act, um, or they're listed as, as uh, people who, who should be given extra, extra consideration under the Equality Act. Um, yeah, and, and carers of children, because they're impacted by how they can move around with children. If you're um, moving with children on the street, um, if you don't feel the child is safe, then, you know, you're not going to walk or cycle with them, for example. 
Tim, do you have anything to add on, on that one about the extent to which we hear and act on children's voices in, in transport planning, but maybe urban planning generally? Well, I, I, when I saw the question, uh, when you shared it in advance, I, I went back to, I, I had a meeting with uh, some people from Arab and Lucy Saunders. So some people will know this uh, creator of the Healthy Streets programme in, in TFL uh, and uh, now moving on as a consultant. Now, she was sharing as an ex-public health person her experience of, of how transport planners tended to see children. And I thought it was quite revealing. Because the two words that she used, I hope she won't mind me quoting her, uh, were that they're seen as lazy and deviant. So lazy <laughs> in that, you know, they just want to be driven everywhere, which of course is just, it's just a myth. Um, but deviant in the sense of, you know, unpredictable, um, unreliable, you know, not the kind of road users that, that, that the transport planners want to, 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 to think about too much because it's too scary. And I think that, that it's, it's, there's, a lot, there's a, a lot that I think really needs to be unpacked about not just talking to children, engaging with children, well, I think that's important, but about the kind of point of view and the understanding of childhood that we have and that transport planners have, and that they, 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 we need a substantive point of view about about what places need to look like and how different people and, and again Lucy's work mentioned women older people can get around. And there's a lot of overlaps um, with with different marginalised transport groups, um, but children I think particularly emblematic. But they're also um, and I'll say this I've said it before I'll say it again. You know I think they have a particular value because you know because of their youth because they've got their lives in front of them, but also because they help to, I, I think, be a catalyst for wider conversations about the future of cities, about the future of transport and for building a kind of collective consensus. Um, and But it, it's not always easy to get that from children themselves. Children are quite articulate about what they like and don't like. So for instance, one of the things that children always say when, when we ask, take the time to ask them about their neighborhoods is that they like to be able to get around on their own and feel safe but I, I, I think we we can't put the burden of creating better places onto children um, we need to as adults have a, a substantive point of view um, that includes children as part of our brief um, as well as bringing their voices into the conversation absolutely so What's the opportunity here? If we did, if we did uh, begin to put children more at the heart of transport planning, um, what are the hallmarks of child-friendly cities? Would you say, and how does transport and mobility fit into that? So, can start with you, Tim, on that one. Yes, I, I, and it's a really good question because we a child-friendly place is a place that's easy to get around on foot or by bike. That's absolutely clear. Nobody can argue with that. Um, and it's also a place where there's, you know, a, a lot of choice and, and, and places to go. So in my book, I talk about the, that two dimensional framework of child friendliness. You've got the mobility access and the kind of choice and things to do access. Um, and the opportunity is. I, I think everybody on this call would agree, agree the direction of travel we need to go, pardon the pun, um, you know, we, we need to become less car dependent. We need to get more people walking and cycling and using public transport. Um, and we need to do that pretty fast and, and, and in a, a strategic long term way. We need to build a positive future for a less car you know, dependent world and bringing children into the thinking about transport is a great way to elevate that conversation. And I think we've seen that a bit with some of the, the, the rows around low traffic neighbourhoods and some of these other measures. You know, so I think school streets um, as, a, as a measure, so stopping traffic at times during the school day for kids to come in, have been much less, less controversial than low traffic neighbourhoods. Now, there are various reasons for that, but I think one of them, one of the reasons why they're less controversial is because there is that explicit focus on children and their health and well-being, and I think that's a, a lesson that we can learn more widely. And um, there, I think you know there are some models overseas about that as well. Oslo is a good example of a city 
that has done some really interesting work involving children in transport planning using a, a mobile phone app actually to, to get children's views and it's done that partly because it, it it fits with the city's wider goal to reduce car dependence and effect, you know and effectively stop the growth of car traffic yeah that i, I think uh, that app's in your book isn't it um it is, and yeah. allows children to kind of as they're going about their business to report things that they spot that make it difficult for them to use public space or you, difficult to move around. And then, you know, the, the people who manage that app have got the, have got kind of a picture of, of these seemingly small, low level things that perhaps, perhaps most people wouldn't notice that as a child could be a real barrier. Um, yeah. It's a really, it's a really good example of what, of, of what you might call participation with a purpose so that, that mm-hmm. there is that involvement and that voice of children, but it, the, the 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 mobile phone app goes directly to highway engineers in the town hall, you know, in the city council, who have a budget and the ability to get things done to make a difference. So it's not just you know participation for its own sake. It's very clearly linked to the wider goals of the city and leads to measurable results and measurable improvements for children. Yeah, Lucy. No, I, I just wanted to kind of reel back a little bit to what we were talking about before, because I, I kind of touched on consultation as kind of potentially that, you know, that's an area that we're not very good at. Um, but I do think also just integrating the idea that providing for children and play are core parts of what a highways engineer should be doing. You know, this should be conceived of as a serious important weighty topic and it's not at the moment you know it's all okay you know yes children might move unpredictably and you know there are there are things that make it harder for them to be modeled in a way in the same way that pedestrians and I mean Tim's absolutely right you know, a child-friendly city is going to be one that people can walk and cycle safely in um, and without the threat of traffic and you know that they feel comfortable in um, because obviously children don't drive um, but but I do think there's there's a kind of yeah a sense that play isn't a play and child mobility isn't seen as a serious topic and I think it needs to be much better integrated into highways engineering courses and transport planning courses from you know from the point that people are actually undertaking their training um, on yeah on the issue of kind of what is a child friendly city and what might that look like I think. I mean, school streets are great, but they are much more focused on primary school travel than, say, secondary school travel because they cover a much smaller area. So for secondary school travel, you really need to be looking at a kind of, you know, three or four mile radius around a school, whereas a school street might just cover, um, you know, 50 metres or something. Um, But I think also they're probably less controversial because they're, you know, they don't have such significant impact on on severing traffic and that, you know, they only, only... um, are in place for part of the day. So, yeah, I, I, I can see that they certainly have a role to play, but we need to, I think, low traffic neighbourhoods, um, kind of more crossings, more protected cycle routes, more green space as well. Um, and actually, maybe, we, you know, we've had home zones in the UK, but they haven't really taken off in the way that the Wunerf have in uh, the Netherlands. So I think that's those are kind of areas that, um, yeah, there's more potential to develop some of those uh, types of infrastructure in the UK. Sort of leads on to, to my next question is how British cities measure up to that standard of a child friendly city. Um, Tim, did you did you want to go for that one? Sure. Uh, not very well, I think, really. Um, I, I mean, uh Certainly, in terms of measures of child mobility, for example, the UK is not, not doesn't do particularly well. It's not it's not the worst. Actually, some of the southern European countries, Italy and Spain, are pretty poor for children's mobility, uh, and the US. Um, but also, that the, there isn't the same policy or, if you like, kind of cultural debate. I think around child friendliness in the UK as there is in some other parts of the world. And, and it's for that reason that, that I mean, the only city that I wrote about in any detail out of the dozen or so cities in an urban playground, uh, which have taken this idea seriously, was London. And London has actually got some quite good policy 
in, in, in the London plan around both space, play space, if you like, and mobility. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's too early and it's been recently toughened up, actually. It's more, it's, it's strengthened in the last round. But I think there are various issues around the London plan. One is that, that it tends to bite the strongest with new developments. So it does, doesn't have a big impact on existing areas. Um, but I also think that, I mean, I'm watching closely what's happening in Hackney. And I think Hackney is, has for decades been a, a, a flag, you know, a, a leading authority around walking and cycling and tackling car dominance. And I'm just looking at some of the stats on that around the, what that means for children in Hackney. And actually, I think there's some quite good news. The children, for instance, do walk to school to a greater extent in Hackney than in some comparable London boroughs. Child pedestrian casualties are lower in Hackney than in than and have remained lower. And and the overall, um, Lucy mentioned, you know, commuter traffic. The, the the car share in Hackney has been falling really quite dramatically. So I think and Hackney is about to or is in the process of becoming a formal child friendly borough. So there's a kind of accreditation process. So I think Hackney is 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 well worth keeping an eye on. Um, but aside from that, there are some interesting things at the national level happening in Wales and Scotland. Um, uh, I won't go into all the details, but, but certainly explicit recognition of children in planning and children's participation. But again, it's too soon to see, I think, how that, the impact that that's having on, on streets and places. And we've talked quite a lot about um what this kind of approach would do for children, um, but what might be the benefits uh, more widely for the wider community, for the vitality of a city, for the climate agenda, for the economy? What's the prize on offer here? Uh, Lucy, do you want to do you want to kick us off? I mean, a, a city that works for children works for everybody. So, I mean, there was a discussion earlier in the week that I had about equality impact assessments and you know often when we talk about inclusive design we're thinking about disability um, but we know that actually if you create streets that disabled people can use normally uh, they can be used by children um, and I, I think yeah there's I mean there's there I think there is there's sort of a bit of more understanding about the importance of doing things like measuring diversity and it's important not only that we collect data on what's happening as I mentioned but also what the potential is but also what these interventions like low traffic neighbourhoods have um, what is their impact in terms of diversity and there's some really good work happening in South London on the low traffic neighbourhoods there where measuring you know uh, I think Anna Goodman and some colleagues are measuring age and gender um, in uh, of the people who are cycling through through these new low traffic neighborhoods um, and I, I know in the cycling and walking investment strategy report that came out uh, from the all-party parliamentary group for walking and cycling that there was a recommendation for mobility justice that we start measuring the numbers of children and older people for example who are cycling not just looking at the overall levels of people walking and cycling but measuring who is actually doing that walking and cycling and I think ultimately we need targets every local authority needs a target um, for inclusivity in in that in that regard um, so that thing, things are kind of moving in the right direction um, but obviously climate change is 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 not going to wait um, for us to, to kind of respond you know it's it's a crisis and I think um, yeah we, we certainly need to be moving much more quickly with regard to the climate and if you do things that are good for the climate generally they, they will be good for children too. Yeah. I want to just move us on I guess to the bit that I know you're both very keen um, to get to in terms of how do we get to how do we get there how can we realise the potential benefits of a more child-friendly um, approach to transport planning what needs to change and perhaps we could start at the top with what, what needs to happen at national government do they have their transport priorities and spending priorities right tim did you want to well yes i i i know it's easy to throw rocks at government but i'm gonna throw rocks at government it is absolutely insane that we we are, are preparing to spend tens of billions of pounds on major road building schemes on so many levels that is just 
wrong and, and anyone who's concerned about this this topic also needs to be really clear and firm wherever we find ourselves speaking about about that insanity um but i i, I mean it, it's odd because in some respects i've seen some quite good things coming out of government i mean grant shaps and the department for transport were quite uh strident i think in the early stages of the pandemic in 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 the efforts to to you know uh respond quickly to the opportunity that arose to try and get a shift in um in travel modes you know to create low traffic neighbors we i know that's become rather difficult and and entrenched now but 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 the messages from dft that i was seeing back then were really strong um so there's a there's a question about consistency and leadership um and, and i i just want to put in an it's a different way of saying what i've said already which is that i, I can't believe that the dft and ministers don't want to get us to become less car you know they want us to be less car dependent they know that that has to happen so what people like me are offering them on a plate is a way to get that to get more support for that to get more buy-in for that by saying to people look you know, if you care about your kids and the kids in your life and you care about how your towns and cities are going to be in the future, then then think about you know, the, the, the vision of making places work better for children for the next generation is a powerful way to build support for sustainability. A sustainable place looks like a child friendly place. Um, and, and there are politicians, the best example I have is the, the mayor of Tirana in Albania. Now, I know it might be odd sharing stories from, from Albania on this, on this call, but Albania and Tirana in particular was a city that had real problems coming out of the last 20 or 30 years. And the mayor of Albania actually initially by chance really landed on children and thinking about children as, as a kind of symbol of the future of that city and has used that really skillfully, I think, not just as a PR spin thing, but as a, as a prism for um, seeing the kind of changes that the city needs to make and building support in a very, very divided culture for some kind of consensus about making that city better for everyone. So I think that at the national level, uh, politicians have nothing to lose and everything to gain by uh, thinking more about children and engaging more with children. You see, perhaps, uh, perhaps we could also, I mean, there may be things you want to say about the national level, but what also needs to change at the local level, at the level of the Transport Authority, for example. Yeah, I mean, thank you for the national issue first. Yeah, it makes no sense that we're spending 27 billion on road building, or that's the plan. Um, we've got too much money in one area, which is unusual in government for to be able to say that. You know, we've got too much spending in one place, and yet there's this dearth of funding. I know that funding has increased for walking and cycling, um, and clearly that's going to have big benefits for children, but there still isn't enough for those um, types of transport for active travel. Uh, and, and the other concern I think I've got is about EVs as well. There's a lot of focus on electric vehicles um, and funding going into that. And potentially that could have very negative implications for children because we don't just want to replace all the petrol powered vehicles with vehicles that are powered by electric vehicles. And I know there's then also a sense of, um, well, actually electricity might be cheaper than petrol. So people might drive more with their electric vehicles. But, you know, you still have severance, uh, inability to play out um, the threat of motor traffic, noise and, uh, and, and particulate matter as well coming from electric vehicles. So there are lots of problems bound up with electric vehicles um, and some reports now suggesting that actually they may make matters worse. So I think there is a kind of national funding question there, which will have implications for children. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see like the in Wales, they've got the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which means that decisions that are made have to consider future generations. Um, and I think we do need something uh, along those lines and some, some way of giving more weight at both national and local decision making to the needs of children. You know, would they have been excluded for a long, long time? 
you know, decades of excluding them from our thinking, from how we measure measure travel, from, you know, what we build. So I think there should be a sort of reweighting of things. So moving away from the commute and away from adult travel needs much more to child mobility. Um, and that isn't just about sort of traveling from A to B. That is about the experience as you go. I mean, Tim, you mentioned Hackney. Well, there's a wonderful scheme there where you've got this street that's just full of kind of play and um, interactive, you know, trees and all lots of different sort of ways of interacting with the street space as you move along it for children. So, yeah, sort of in transport planning terms, it, we need to think more broadly, I suppose, than just getting from A to B when we're thinking about how children interact with their streets. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, we need some targets um, and certainly a, re, a reallocation of, of funding uh, from one area, I would say, from roads to children walking and cycling. Thanks, Lucy. And for, for a city that's wanting to place children's needs closer to the heart of transport planning, where should they start, Tim? What would you advise? Uh, I mean, you know, ideally you want to champion. I mean, I'm, I'm just in, in, in remembering or, or I, I don't know how many people saw the article in The Guardian a couple of days ago about Birmingham and this sort of plan that Birmingham has to, as I understand it, it's, 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 it's sort of cir traffic circulation plan, but it's strategic. Um, it's got, a, you know, a clear um, sort of value base. Sounds to me like it's based on, uh, the traffic circulation plan that the city of Ghent put into place. So Ghent's one of the uh, cities that I write about in the book. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's not just a sort of piecemeal, um, a, you know, we, we'll work with residents where they're interested and create some low traffic neighbourhoods and, and then things blow up or you get bogged down. It's, it, it's, um, it, it's, and, and the, but the interesting thing about the article was that the, uh, transport lead in the council, the Birmingham City Council, um, uh, Wasim Zafar, I think is his name, uh, was really clear about, you know, his dad was a taxi driver, you know, his kids are growing up in the city. Um, for him, this is about, it, it, it's very strongly grounded in him wanting to do his bit to make the city better for everyone. So that, that strong ethical leadership role and, and then, being kind of clear with people that that's going to involve some pretty dramatic changes. I, I think that's, we need that kind of leadership um, and, and we should be celebrating um, people who are, who are you know, taking sometimes pretty tough decisions to do that uh, whilst figuring out how we can support those who are coming in behind so that you can mainstream this and not just rely on, on you know, the, a few brave politicians. And Lucy, same question to you, really, for a city wanting to start in out in this area, placing children's needs close to the heart of transport planning, what should they do first? What are the main things? Um, I suppose kind of maybe remind themselves of the, the various acts, the Equality Act, the Public Health Duty Acts that they have, because I think if you meet those duties, then actually you will be providing places that everybody can use and places that suit children. I think there's a lot to be gained and a lot more um, analysis that needs to be done of the low traffic neighbourhood principle, um, because obviously for the people living on those streets where through traffic's removed, we are seeing that it has big benefits for particular groups, um, including children on a lot of these schemes. Um, you know, I know mums for lungs have been concerned that there might be displacement of traffic and therefore pollution on the surrounding roads. And so I think, you know, that's an area that needs to be looked at. But because they are cheap, because they can be trialled so easily, I think low traffic neighbourhoods do offer huge potential really for children um, in terms of creating spaces that they could actually use. Um, yeah, and I mean, one issue we haven't really touched on, actually, is strict driver liability law. I think, of, you know, the highway code is being reviewed. There is kind of more emphasis on protecting children. But I think we could go further um, in, in bringing in strict driver liability. So having particular protections for children on the streets, um, particularly given 
they they do not, you know, they're never the the people causing the harm on the road. So, yeah, I think low traffic neighbourhoods, I think, would be the <laughs> and trialling them and giving people the experience of what it's like to live um, on on a road with less traffic. Yes, school streets um, and also these individual events like play streets are brilliant for just allowing people to see uh, how, how the street can be and how children can play out if, if you remove through traffic. Okay, well this might be a good point to bring in some audience questions uh, because one in particular follows on quite nicely from what you're just saying there Lucy, we've got 10 minutes left. Um, so Alice asks, is there too much focus on specific interventions like low traffic neighbourhoods and not enough on overall reduction of traffic speed and volume. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry <laughs> to jump in. <laughs> it's a really, really, really important question. Um, but actually what, what we're seeing from the low traffic neighbourhoods, the impacts on road casualties is actually they have a more significant impact. Um, they're better at reducing road casualties than 20 mile an hour zones and traffic calming is plus they're cheaper so yeah both both from the kind of um you know air pollution and, and all these other sort of things that need considering but i think from a road casualty point of view there's quite clear evidence now that low traffic neighborhoods do a very good job of reducing casualties and there hasn't been displacement onto the surrounding road network with road casualties so you know it's, it's been simply a beneficial um process would you like to add anything on that tim um, I think uh, I mean I'd reiterate the need I think for for, for a strategy. I, I think I think there is a danger that, and I've seen this with other child friendly initiatives as well. That that if they're if if the if the initiatives are kind of reliant upon community bottom up action and nothing else, um, then you can end up with a situation where you know the more the, the more mo, you know the kind of more effective. Uh, seasoned campaigners and people communities with greater resources which means you know more privileged communities can end up um you know making making things better in their neighborhoods but those in in, in poorer neighborhoods can struggle and so i think uh, you, you need a strategy and that strategy needs to have equity and, and fairness built into it um and uh, i mean i guess uh the other thing i'd, I'd say is is that I think we need to 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 think more about how we can get children's voices directly into this. I mean, I, I'm talking about children as a lens and a, and a prison, but also I think that that idea of participation with a purpose. I, I think some of the opponents of low traffic neighbourhoods and some some of the vitriol, I think, would be um, would be reduced if we could kind of literally bring children into the conversation. Now, I think that needs to be done with care. Um, but I think so, for instance, the, the London Child Obesity Task Force, which is a body that's working out of the, the mayor of London, is doing some really interesting work around children's voices and particularly how at the early stage of a project to um, get children's voices into local authority decision making around transport. And I think it'd be really interesting to see what comes out of that. Yeah. That, I think that's such a good point about just talking about children and fairness. And actually, um, I think it was Professor Peter Cox from the University of Chester saying that if we talk about fairness, of which bringing children into the debate could be um, a very critical part, that's a much better approach to reducing traffic than talking about, than pitting drivers against, you know, cyclists and pedestrians and winners against losers. Yeah. But th this idea of fairness has more meaning and resonance with people. Um, yeah, so that, that I, think, I think that's a really important point. And, and this issue of inequalities arising at the moment between boroughs, you know, in London, for example, you've got some boroughs that are really steaming ahead, like Hackney with low traffic neighbourhoods, but others that aren't. And that produces all sorts of inequalities, you know, health. And, and you know, the, this does need to be evidence-based in the same way that, medical care is evidence-based you know we can't have a position where some hospitals are providing um you know I don't know vaccinations and others aren't it, it, you know, it this has serious implications for people's health so I think going back to the evidence as well is important at this point um, and maybe having a London-wide plan for low traffic neighbourhoods 
that people buy into rather than leaving it to individual authorities who don't necessarily have the political will to make the changes that are necessary. Okay. And I'm going to stick with you, Lucy, if that's okay, because I've got quite a transport techie kind of question here, but one that's really important. Um, are transport appraisal systems like WebTag, uh, which prioritise economic benefits with no little regard for public health, well-being, and so on, is that a key problem uh, when it comes to which transport schemes get funding and is there any opportunity to get that changed? Yeah, I mean, this has been a long-standing problem, really, that we've given undue weight to the commute. Um, and so, you know, schemes that have typically meant, you know, maybe adding a traffic lane has meant shaving off a few seconds time for all the drivers who are going to work has had that kind of a scheme has had far more weight um, given to it. And therefore, it's done better in, in the web tag and appraisal scheme mechanisms that transport use I know that they are updating those and they have been updating them so I don't think they're a kind of static document my understanding is they are improving uh, as as our kind of understanding of the implications of motor traffic are, are being better understood so I don't think it's a fixed thing web tag um, they are they are trying to improve it if there's anyone on the call from the DFT, I'd welcome further, you know, um, update on that. But yeah, as I understand it, the DFT are revising that and, and have revised it. So, so yeah. that it. You know, so that it does better understand, you know, better um, articulate things like health and these other things, which are obviously really important and, and bring huge, huge economic benefits in themselves. Okay, thank you. Um... I think uh, we've also got a question here, uh, which we've touched on on and off throughout the conversation, really. Are there international bright spots, countries that uh, buck the trend that we can learn lessons from and places where children still have a more independent um, freedom to play, freedom to explore? Tim, would you like to take that one? Yes. And I and I see there's a couple of answers to that already, which mentioned the Netherlands. And I, I think I know <laughs> I mean, I live half a mile away from one of the mini Holland schemes, the one in Waltham Forest. So I, I know sometimes people get a bit fed up about talking about the Netherlands, but I think there is a lot we could learn and not least actually about, about what transport equity means. I mean, you know, I, I'm not an expert on transport planning, but people tell me that Dutch drivers, Dutch car drivers are happier than drivers in other European nations because they feel uh, in terms of congestion, you know, that, that the Netherlands is working better for car drivers. So that should give us pause for thought. Um, but in particular, I, I, I'd want, I devote a whole chapter of um, Urban Playground to Rotterdam. Uh, and Rotterdam's interesting because it's not a typical Dutch city. It was more or less flattened after the Second World War. So it was built back in the 60s and 70s in very car dependent ways. And so one of the things they've been having to do is to sort of unwind that. And they have, have uh, and also the city had a terrible reputation as a place to bring up a child. You know, people just didn't want to live there. So there are some lots of really interesting um, aspects of Rotterdam's work on child-friendly urban planning design that other cities can learn from, uh, including, you know, collaboration, strategy, uh, monitoring and evaluation, uh, building political support and there's a few things they got wrong as well but I think I think that's that's a, a city that's you know there's a reason why I just uh, why, why I wanted to devote a whole chapter to it. Thanks Tim and unfortunately I'm going to have to call this uh, conversation to a close here we've got a couple of minutes left but that was absolutely fascinating I'm sure we could have carried on for a lot longer but thank you Tim thank you Lucy I'm sure the audience will, will join me in thanking you too that was really really interesting stuff thanks for spending time with us this afternoon and I'll just quickly pass on to Jonathan just to summarise um, and just to just to sum up the discussion. Yeah and thanks again to our guests Lucy and Tim what was a fantastic discussion and conversation a few stands out for me um, we don't take this issue seriously enough we don't have the data we don't do enough on engagement and we don't value it in the decisions we take. And I think there's a tendency to marginalise children in transport decision making in that telling phrase as deviant and lazy, a kind of scary problem that's too hard to deal with. And therefore we can kind of push it to one side. Uh, but we shouldn't be doing that because the built form is a key factor. Motor traffic, fear of motor traffic is damaging for children. And 
as, I think as a network of transport authorities, we need to think more about what we can do with our members in this area in a practical way to move this issue from the margins and uh, from the shadows at more centre stage. And we probably also need someone like the Mayor of Tirana explicitly champion it at a city level. I don't think we've got that. I think that would make a massive difference in this debate. I also think perhaps we need some uh, uh, show notes for this when we put it out as a podcast with further reading. A lot was being exchanged in the chat, but I think that could be really useful. And finally, perhaps as well, we all need to reconnect with the emotional resonance of our own childhood experiences, the kind of freedoms and places we enjoyed and how we can bring it to our adult roles and the decisions that we take. So thanks again. Our next Urban Transport Next will be all about unleashing unleashing the full potential of e-bikes. Uh, and we're going to be holding that in November. More details to follow very soon. Hope you can join us for that. And in the meantime, thanks again to Tim and Lucy, to everyone who took part live, for those listening into the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube. Thank you and goodbye.